Amen. Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. So last week we launched a new sermon series on Nehemiah. If you missed that first message, I'd encourage you to go check that out online. Um, Nehemiah is not one of the most famous people in scripture, but there's certainly a lot that we can learn from him, um, like his dependence on prayer, uh, his wisdom, his leadership, his persistence, his courage in the face of opposition. So I'm uh, now 51 years old, and I've been in ministry for 20 years now. And one thing I've learned is that no matter what level of ministry you step into, um, whether it's serving on a ministry team, whether it's leading a ministry team, whether it's being a director or a pastor or an elder or a missionary, ministry is tough. When we start out, we can idealize ministry. Um, we think it'll be, we think this like, It'll be wonderful to serve the Lord. I'll be working with other Christians who also love the Lord. It'll be so much better than my secular job. And then we jump in and we realize that it's harder than we thought. We realize that even among Christians, people who love the Lord, who follow the Lord, we can have conflict, we can have disagreements. And in some cases, the Christians can end up being more hurtful than the non-Christians. We don't anticipate these things. We don't anticipate the spiritual warfare. and We can quickly grow disillusioned. Following Jesus doesn't guarantee a trouble-free life, and serving Jesus isn't necessarily easy. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2 today, and Nehemiah has some helpful insights on the realities and the challenges of serving God, which is the title of my message this morning, The Realities and Challenges of Serving God. Even though Nehemiah was doing God's will, uh, there were some real challenges for him to overcome. So chapter two begins with a chronological note uh, that shows us that four months have passed since Nehemiah first heard the report of Jerusalem that the walls had been torn down, that the gates had been destroyed by fire. And it was four months until Nehemiah got the opportunity to speak to the king about this. And during those four months, Nehemiah was so burdened by the news that he received that he wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. All this while he waited waited for God to show him when it was the right time to make the move. Some of you may think like four months is a long time to wait. But there's a lot of waiting in the Bible. Um, Abraham, he waited over 25 years for God to bring him Isaac. Joseph, he waited 13 years, right? He was 17 when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was 30 when he was released from prison and appointed head over Egypt just under Pharaoh. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. I mean, that's a long time to wait, 
400 years. It always blows my mind because that means that there were generations of people who spent their whole lives waiting, right? Waiting as slaves, uh, looking for their freedom, the freedom that was promised to them, right? Moses, he spent 40 years in the desert before God used him to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt, right? And then the Israelites spent another 40 years in the wilderness. David spent his 20s running from King Saul, right? We don't know exactly how long that was, uh, but it could have been up to 10 years of running and waiting to succeed Saul as king. Part of being a mature follower of Jesus is learning to wait on him. Those who God uses must learn to wait on him. So, so what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we wait? Well, we learn a lot uh, today from Nehemiah on that very thing. As I said last week, the first thing Nehemiah did while he waited was he prayed. He prayed over and over again over those four months um, as he carried like this burden, this concern for God's glory and for God's people. Um, in every situation, it seemed that Nehemiah prayed. Right? He is a perfect example of praying without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Don't want to talk about that. Pray without ceasing. The original Greek word there for without ceasing doesn't mean without any break, right? We, we, see, we hear pray without ceasing and we, we just think, well, that's impossible. Like I got, I got to live life. I got stuff to do. But it was a word that was also used to describe a hacking cough, right? So it's not completely uninterrupted prayer, but it means that we keep coming back to prayer, much like a hacking cough. Have you had a hacking cough? Uh, I may be one of the only people uh, you may have ever met who had a full-blown case of whooping cough. Uh, I got it in, in, uh, in the late 90s when I was in grad school, whooping cough. The CDC even called me and put me in quarantine. Like, that's a big deal. Uh, you cough so frequently and so violently that, like, everything around your torso just aches because you're just coughing, 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 coughing. I mean, it's like the ultimate core workout, <laughs> whooping cough. Now, this is gross, um, but you cough so much that sometimes you vomit. Um, that happened to me in the shower one time when I had whooping cough. Like, like I'm showering, and I just start this coughing fit and uh, vomit up a whole meal. I remember thinking, like, well, what do I do now? Why am I telling you this? Because I want to give you a vivid enough mental picture so you will remember that praying without ceasing is like a relentless hacking cough, okay? 
And for four months, Nehemiah prayed like that. Relentlessly, repeatedly, like short prayers, long prayers, everything in between. So one day, the king notices Nehemiah uh, looks sad, which I, I said this last week. Like, it is dangerous to look sad in the presence of the king. Like, if he didn't like your disposition, he could just order you executed. So, verse two uh, in our scripture today says this. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. So the opportunity he'd been waiting for finally came, and it says that he was terrified. How did he handle it? Well, he says this. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied. Now, I'm sure it was like, uh, a silent, kind of quick cry out to the Lord, like, help, Lord. Or maybe it was like, Lord, I need your wisdom right now. Something silent, something quick that he just threw up to the Lord. And, and this, this quick, short, silent prayer came at the end of four months of uninterrupted, continuous prayer, right? So Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And when the king responded favorably, uh, he didn't attribute it just to good luck. All right, verse eight says this. The king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So he knew, he knew this was God. Proverbs 21, verse one says this. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. The great British Baptist missionary Hudson Taylor uh, once said this. He said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. So one reason why God makes us wait on him is to teach us to depend on him in prayer. Um, if he immediately granted everything that we asked for, right, we'd, we would grab the goodies and we would forget God. But when we wait on God in prayer, we learn to seek God himself and to depend on him in ways that we never would have done otherwise, right? And, and we learn what it looks like to live a life in dependence on God in prayer. And when the answer finally comes, we realize that it's because of one reason. And in, in the words of Nehemiah, the gracious hand of God is on us. Amen. Amen. And so we give God the glory that he deserves. So the second thing that's happening while Nehemiah is waiting is he's developing patience. The idea is not to do nothing but to wait on the Lord, right? To wait until it's clear that he's moving. Nehemiah didn't hear about like what was happening and then just rush right into the presence of the king and then ask for a year's uh, leave of absence because God had called him to Jerusalem, right? No, instead for four months, he hid this heavy burden in his heart. Um, he presented it to God in private. 
until God finally opened the opportunity for him to talk to the king. Only then did Nehemiah move ahead. We also see him demonstrate patience when he arrives in Jerusalem. Verses 11 and 12 say this. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Now, he could have immediately, like as soon as he arrived, ridden into town and just said, I've come to rebuild the wall. Like, let's, let's have a meeting tonight to discuss the plan. Instead, he waited three days uh, before doing anything. And then when he moved out, he began moving very cautiously, right, very carefully, uh, making sure not to reveal what he was about to do until the right moment. So again, uh, what do we see Nehemiah doing as he's waiting for God to move? He prays and he demonstrates patience. Next thing we see Nehemiah doing while he's waiting is he's planning. He's planning. So it's pretty clear Nehemiah had been doing a lot of thinking and planning uh, while he was waiting patiently and praying. When the king asked how long he'd be gone, uh, Nehemiah didn't say, well, that's up to the Lord. He gave him a timeline. We, learn, uh, we will learn later in chapter 5 that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem for 12 years. He probably uh, finished the wall, then he returned to report to the king, and then went back to serve as the governor. Not only did Nehemiah give the king a definite time, he also laid out some very clear, very definite requests uh, that showed that he had been doing some careful planning. It's in verses 7 and 8. It says, I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I'll need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So he requested letters from the king to the governors of the provinces to allow him passage through their territories. He asked for a letter to the manager of the king's forest so he could get wood to make repairs to the walls, to the gates, and so he could build a house for himself. And when Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, he assesses the situation and obviously did some planning as to how to approach this project, which I want to speak to for a minute. Prayer and planning are not at odds with one another. Some Christians think that it is unspiritual to plan. Um, and they wait until the last minute for inspiration from the Lord. You can go too far in the other direction, right? Where all you do is plan and you strategize, and then you end up trusting in those plans and those strategies more than you trust in the Lord. I believe God can be working in the planning process and God can work in the moment. Like he's sovereign, he's in control, 
He lives outside of time. He can move in the planning process and he can move in the moment. So for the past two years uh, in November, I've taken the pastors and Shelly off-site to Fargo uh, for what I call prayer and planning, prayer and planning. So we've, we've gotten a room at uh, Valley Christian, and we worship, we pray, we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, uh, we share words, we share scriptures, I'm trying to get a sense of where the Lord is leading and what he's calling us to do in the coming year. Um, we come out of there having calendared out uh, most of the main events for the coming year, um, having had many conversations that help us form annual goals for the next year, smart goals. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Uh, so I go into those meetings having already prayed and planned uh, out the preaching calendar for the next year so that we can look for church-wide alignment of goals and objectives and such. So we're looking for synergy uh, where we can support one another, not necessarily compete with one another. Right? We're, we're asking big picture questions like, like, are we doing too much? Are we doing too little? Uh, are we overlooking anything? And so forth. So the idea is to prayerfully plan, but then hold those plans loosely so we're flexible enough to respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit in the moment if we need to. So it's not an either or, it is a both and. And Nehemiah uh, demonstrates that biblical balance of prayer and planning, which is a good lesson for all of us. Um, while we wait on the Lord, we pray, we develop patience, and we plan. And then, like Nehemiah, uh, when it's time to begin, we begin. And once we begin, we begin to have problems. Just kidding. But not really. So those who are new at ministry, uh, whether it's serving or leading or pastoring or elding, um, sometimes they're surprised when they start encountering problems, when they begin to face opposition. And pretty quickly, uh, they soon learn this principle. Anytime you try to do something significant for God, there will be problems. So the Jews in Jerusalem believed in God. Uh, they believed in his covenant promises, at least intellectually. But they had lost hope. Right? They were likely to resist this outsider who was coming in and telling them to try something new, right? something that they knew, they knew couldn't be done. Right? Some may have not even seen the need. Others would warn that, you know, if, if you try to rebuild the wall, you're only going to make enemies 
of the surrounding governors, right? So Nia's careful, secretive preparations, uh, once he got to Jerusalem, shows that he anticipated there would be some resistance uh, to his proposal, what he was about to propose doing. Preparing to deal with resistance was part of his planning. So he spent three days doing his homework, thinking about how to present this in a way that would overcome the objections he knew would be coming. After that, he called the Jewish leaders and he called the people together and he began by stating the problem very plainly. It's in verse 17. He says this, You know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. He told them that if they could rebuild the wall, that they would win back the people's respect. Um, He told them that not, not only was God in support of the plan, but that the king had given them the go-ahead. Verse 18 says this, Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. So the people were now ready to begin this good, godly work of rebuilding the wall. However, however, not everyone is thrilled about such things. Not everyone is thrilled about the opportunity to build something new for God, to build something new for God's people, especially if it has a negative impact on them personally. Verse 10 says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. And then verse 19 says this. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? And so we see that Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, after hearing of the plans he brings for rebuilding, for restoration, um, it is clear that for some people, he is not welcome. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north. Tobiah ruled the Ammonites to the east. Geshem was the leader of the Arabs to the south. They all opposed a fortified Jerusalem. Why? Because it threatened them. It threatened their political positions. They didn't care about the Jews, much less about the name of the Lord being exalted in Jerusalem. They weren't happy. And so they joined together to ridicule the project, to accuse the people of rebellion against the king, Sanballat, 
Tobiah, and Geshem. Voices of despair, desperation, and fear. They scoff contemptuously. They mock the plan. They ridicule it. They challenge Nehemiah and basically ask him, why are you wasting your time? Who are you to think that you can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? It's obvious the king wouldn't support such a plan. And Nehemiah demonstrates uh, both wisdom and courage in dealing with these enemies. He realized this. This is no time for diplomacy. I need to meet these enemies head on. Any meeting to work out a compromise would have been a mistake. So Nehemiah courageously confronts them. He draws the line in the sand between them and God's people so they couldn't join the project Right, with the intention of sabotaging it. And it's interesting. He, he could have used the authority of the king's letters that the king had given him, but instead, he uses his God-given authority when he says this in verse 20. He says, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Anytime God's people say, let's get up and build, the enemy says, let's get up and stop them. Nehemiah is clear about two things. Two things. Who he is and what he's called to do. And dealing with opposition is just part of the gig. Right? There comes a time uh, when the situation demands not compromise, not diplomacy, but courageous leadership. A clarity of the call of God leading to a determined resolve. Nehemiah is essentially saying, you're either for the kingdom that God is building here or you are not. You can either participate and appreciate like what is about to happen or you can mock us, you can fight us and you can try to bully us. And you can miss out on the awesome thing that God is about to do here. In the society we live in, uh, we tend to not like binary thinking. Binary is a computer language for those of you who are not nerds like me, uh, it's a computer language of zeros and ones, right? So it's two states. It's either on or it's off, right? Two options, good, this is binary thinking, good or bad, black or white. You're either for me or you're against me. We tend to prefer shades of gray, peacemaking, through diplomacy, through compromise, and certainly there are times when that's appropriate, absolutely. But as I talked about uh, last week, there are times when it's clear that there are only two options. I mentioned last week 
the ineffectiveness of the outgoing Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in 1940. Um, he was ineffective primarily because he tried to compromise with Hitler. Right, that, was, that was in 1938, and it was the Munich Agreement. Now we see the ridiculousness of that, but back then, 1938, like Hitler's evil was still undercover. Right? It wasn't as overt. Chamberlain's replacement, Winston Churchill... Uh, recognized that there would be no compromising with such evil. There would be no sidestepping the evil that was headed their way. And to think otherwise would just be foolhardy. Nehemiah, in his decisive leadership, is actually foreshadowing what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 12. And he said this, Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Ultimately, Jesus says, we have to choose a side. God explains the principle in another way, in Revelation 3, uh, using the image of water, water. He's speaking to the church in Laodicea, and he says this, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Lukewarm water doesn't have much use. It doesn't make good coffee. doesn't make good tea. It uh, doesn't make for a good shower or a bath. Ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, are we for God or are we against him? Are we operating out of faith and dependence on God or out of fear and selfishness? and a need for control. I'm sure Nehemiah can see, he can see the fear and the frustration on the faces of these three guys, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Nehemiah knows that they're afraid that they will lose space, they'll lose income, they will lose influence, they will lose status. Um, they will lose all these things that the people of Jerusalem are able to stand on their own and they are able to defend their own city. Nehemiah knows that they know they've been benefiting from the current situation and that they, they have a lot to lose. The idea here is that we step into, like as we step into serving and leading in God's kingdom, there is no winning without working and warring. There is no opportunity without opposition. There is no open door set before us uh, without there being 
many adversaries to obstruct, to keep us from entering it. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. There is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. Again, anytime God's people say, let's get up and build, the enemy says, let's get up and stop them. There is no triumph without trouble. There is no victory without vigilance. Every triumph in the kingdom, every victory for the Lord, every crown that is worth wearing, the road to that destination has a cross waiting for us on it. For some of us, that cross is small, right? We have to deal with a minor opposition. We, we have to give up something relatively minor. For some, that cross is large. We have to deal with a major opposition, or we, we have to give up a lot. In both cases, there's pain, there's loss, there's sacrifice. For some, for some, that cross is literal. Like, it's martyrdom. It is a loss of life. And yes, that still does happen today. I looked it up. The magazine uh, Christianity Today estimates that there have been 70, over 70 million Christian martyrs since Jesus' time. Uh, and Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary estimates that just in the 21st century alone, there have been somewhere between 100,000 and 160,000 Christians killed each year. None of us should be surprised about this. None of us. We know Jesus said this in Matthew 16. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I want to close with a poem by a guy named C.T. Studd. He was a British missionary in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the poem is called, Only One Life, will soon be passed. I think it's going to come up. Yeah, there it is. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still, small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self 
or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all." Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for Thee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, truly, truly, we only have one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for you, what's done in your name, will truly last. Lord, help us to follow Nehemiah's example, to be people of wisdom and prayer and patience and courageous resolve as we follow your call to build or rebuild, to create or restore, to bring healing or to sacrifice for your kingdom here on the earth. Lord, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.